At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, October 12th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm here to help you become a better investor to navigate these treacherous waters, these interesting times that we find ourselves in, and a new regime that has been ushered in by a pandemic and major geopolitical tension throughout the world. And so our job is to try to weed out the narrative and focus on the true facts of the businesses, the the sectors, the economies that are ever changing, uh, especially in this new world. So how do you navigate that? Well, we're here to help. Okay, we're going to talk about some market performance today. We're going to run down our show topics. But as usual, we are going to hit our first caller question now. Hi, this call is for Justin. I'm calling about Toast, ticker symbol T-O-S-T. You mentioned a couple months ago you had this in your personal portfolio, and um, I was looking into it, kind of liked it. I was wondering what you thought about picking some up now or at what support levels. Thank you so much. Appreciate the answer. Bye. All right, I do have a small amount of this in my personal portfolio. It's pretty high risk. And the main reason I like it, but hold some trepidation about it, uh, are twofold. So the positives, I love the niche they're going after. A, uh, the If you look at small restaurants, their expertise is not in technology and, and uh, dealing with deliveries and uh, order management, etc. And they bring a lot of tools that allow small businesses to basically plug and play and create a uh, or deploy a, a technology technology suite that uh, brings them to, you know, the modern age. And I think toast is doing an incredible job at growing their user base. Here's my other side, though, is that they're doing a terrible job in really getting this to a place where they're not having to issue a ton of capital. Okay. And you know, the free cash flow remains negative. Their shares outstanding continue to go up. And that's what I don't like about it. That's why I'm not going overboard, you know, on major dips, pick a few shares up, but I'm not getting too bullish on it until I see a level of cash flow sustainability that doesn't force them to issue shares constantly. Now, the positive is their cash flow did go from 204 million negative in the first quarter to 135 million negative. So it's still negative, but it's improving. It's going in the right direction. So I, I hope that management gets their act together and can 
stop diluting shareholders. There's no need to. You have a large enough business. They clearly have gross profit margin that's large enough, large enough about 21% and rising, where they should be able to get to at least a, a zero cash flow burn and thus internally finance their own business. And until then, I wouldn't go overboard with it. But of the growth names that are out there, I think is, this is one of the best platforms that's being, that has been developed and is growing uh, throughout the software space. So I like the product, but I don't quite love the investment thesis quite yet. All right, thanks for the call. Now we have a lot of ground to cover in the next 45 minutes, and here's what I've planned. One is in regards to our main focus point, that looks in the story behind how junk fees impact the banking system and how the, the trends within government are helping to alleviate some of these hidden fees across many industries. And we're going to talk about what industries will be most impacted impacted, including the banking system. All right, we're also going to touch on how corporate America faces a trillion dollar debt reckoning. And a lot of people are focused on high yield bonds and the bonds that are traded in public. But the biggest risk out there is actually in the private markets. These are uh, pr private equity, private debt funds, that are often sold through big brokerage firms and they're very opaque, meaning that there's not a whole lot of transparency here. And while the FT or the, uh, the, the SEC, excuse me, is trying to change that doesn't change the fact that these loans are already in place and which investors will be hurt the most. So we're going to talk about that. Also, there's a growing backlash against climate policies, climate policies that are in many ways disjointed, incongruent, and are having trouble really selling it to the public. And so the big question is, what impact will that have on the broader industry? And what direction will they head next if the broader populations around the world don't fully get on board. So we're gonna look at that. And then lastly, kind of a conjunction with that, that second point we were talked about, what is what are the trends in new deals, entries and exits for private equity? Okay, so we're gonna look at that. So those are things on the docket for me, we're gonna get some, some voice bank questions. One is in regards to AGCO and the other our iTunes review question of the day. All right, let's take a look at the market today. You had the CPI number that came in a bit higher than expected, about 10 basis points. And the market kind of freaked out a little bit. And you saw the 10-year up pretty nicely today. Let's see, where were we at? Up almost 12 basis points. Back up to 4.71%. So we'll see if you get some follow-through on that tomorrow uh, or you get, get a retrenchment. You know, we were pulling back, the dollar was pulling back as well, and that reversed 
in some ways today. Will we get another breakout in yields in the dollar? That will certainly be negative for risk assets, and I will, I will be on the lookout for that. The move index remains kind of too close to that 150 level. And that is the volatility of the treasury market. When that gets too high, that that means there's dysfunction, dysfunction in the treasury market. And the Fed doesn't like that. That ultimately means they probably need to come in and do something. And, and at this point, it would probably be rhetoric. They've already, I think, inched towards that rhetoric of pausing. And what they've been saying is, hey, the long end has moved up, and that has done a lot of the tightening for them. So the question is, do they need to do more? Right, Six months ago, the 30-year was in the high threes. Now we're in the high fours. Over 100 basis points increase in just the past six months. Same with the 10-year. 10 10-year, 10 we're at 4.7. Six months ago, we were closer to three and a half. So once again, over 100 basis point increase in the 10-year in the past six months. And a lot of that has to do with issuance, tons of treasury issuance that is pushing rates higher, along with the rhetoric of higher for longer. And so I think it's an easy narrative and an easy out for the Fed to start to push that, hey, we may not raise any more because of the move in the long end of the curve, where that is most impact on the economy as a whole. If you look at where rates have gone, they've gone mo more up outside of the last six months, more up on the short end of the curve, meaning the yield curve has become increasingly more inverted up until the last handful of months. And when you're talking about pricing of debt, that most businesses and corporations are adding debt at, it's linked more towards the longer end of the curve. Say the 10-year, for example, the mortgages are tied to the 10-year. And that didn't go up nearly as much as the short end, the one-year and the two-year, which went from nearly zero all the way to five and a half now on the, on the one-year. Where... If, you're, if you have cash and you're investing that cash in money markets or short-term treasury funds of any type, that's money to you. That is money that you're getting in your pocket. And so in some ways, when the short end rises, it has a stimulative impact on the economy. As opposed to when the long end rises, that has the most negative impact on the economy. And you're starting to see that now. So I could see that being a narrative that starts to build over time. We're still in the, in the odds of pause, pause, the next two Fed meetings, but that will uh, ultimately come down to the more data that comes in. And we can, we'll continue to see more data coming out tomorrow. I thought the, uh, the next week, I, th I thought the market reacted a little too harshly to this number. Not only the fact that CPI is not something the Fed pays as, nearly as much attention to as the PCE indicator, which I believe comes out sometime next week. And that will be a more impactful number to watch. Uh, but pull back today, especially in the small caps, as you had rising interest rates. All right, now as we go to a break, let me remind you that check out our new Invest Talk Classroom series. Our latest episode is now up. It's episode 10. It's titled Index Construction and how in today's world, with a good amount of money flowing into indices, 
It is vital to understand how they are constructed so you know where that money is flowing. The S&P, for example, is market cap weighted. The Dow is price cap weighted. What does that mean? And how does that impact the companies within those indexes and obviously the broad market? To learn more about index construction, search Invest Talk Classroom over on YouTube. And now the phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888 chart You are listening to Invest Talk. We've seen the markets go up, then down, sideways, and around. It's called volatility. And if you're a serious investor, you'll have finance and investment questions for Justin Klein. He's here now taking your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Now, my main focus point today looks in the story behind this headline, how junk fees impact the banking system. And this is a... This is a trend within the current administration, and that is to crack down on hidden fees across many different industries. But uh, last Wednesday, the White House announced a new initiative to rein in tens of billions of dollars of surcharges tied to goods and services, or uh, and this is in partnership with the national nation's leading consumer protection agencies, and they're focusing a lot on banks and. President Biden said, quote, folks can end up paying as much as 20% more because of hidden junk fees than they would have paid if they could see the full price up front and compare it to other options, end quote. And so the FTC's rule proposal would prohibit businesses from bearing fees within a transaction and force them to present the, the amount and purpose of the surcharge up front. And if they didn't, you could, they could actually claw back the extra charges. So what they're so so that's the FTC, that's their ruling. But also the CFPB. This is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau (CFPB). They're targeting big banks by highlighting consumers' right to access complete, accurate, and free account information upon their request. So they're slapping Wells Fargo, Bank of America, in Regions Bank with fines, citing exorbitant overdraft fees and overcharges in most recent years. And they're issuing a proposal that still needs to go through a comment period, but the proposal requires financial companies to allow the easy transfer customer banking transactions data to competitors to kind of analyze these, these fees and be able to be open and transparent. Now, earlier this year, the same agency, CFPB, released a rule proposal on excessive credit card fees as well and began targeting unfair practices in ticketing and other fees. So think of Live Nation. We talked about that before, how they have excess fees. But this is going to impact the credit card companies and potentially even these larger banks that are notorious for it. Wells Fargo is one, right? They got that scandal some years back. So I don't think it's going to impact the broad banking industry systemically, but profitability, I think, is another shot across the bow. And that's why I don't love the banking industry right now. All right, we're heading to a break. Ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. When Talk listeners want to know where a market trend might be headed and why... 
They call the toll-free InvestTalk Anytime listener line, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Justin and your team. This is Mark calling from New Jersey, trying to find a good, safe place to put between five dollars and $9,000. The best person to ask your question is you. And over the years, tens of thousands of caller questions have been asked and answered. I love your show. When InvestTalk listeners have stock-specific questions, they call the InvestTalk Anytime Listener Line. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the stock Fubo. When InvestTalk podcast hosts Steve Peasley and Justin Klein open their microphones, they always provide unbiased guidance. It is now at a 52-week high. I think you hold on to it. One of the better balance sheets in the industry, which I like. So don't forget to call 888-99-CHART. A long-time listener, and thanks in advance for any help. For investors, the goal of achieving financial freedom requires unbiased information, strategic planning, and determination. Congratulations, you've found the podcast that is dedicated to helping you succeed, InvestTalk. Steve and Justin welcome your questions anytime on the InvestTalk listener line, 888-99-CHART. Hello, Steve or Justin. Yesterday, you guys mentioned Verizon as a poor choice to hold in this environment. So I've been eliminating companies that I own that can't support debt with consistent cash flow for the last four years. I came across a company on my screener in the industrial sector called Agco Corp, ticker symbol AGCO. I like that it's been growing its revenue for the past six quarters and future earnings don't say otherwise. It's fundamentally sound, but I'm confused as to why the price of free cash flow is double the PE ratio. If you can comment on this business, I'd really appreciate it. As always, thank you, and I'll be listening on the podcast. Well, typically the the price, the cash flow, and the P ratio are going to differ. So uh, that can mean a lot of different things. So I wouldn't be alarmed at that particular uh, fact. But uh, if you look at the company as a whole, this is AGCO. And for everyone else out there, they make agricultural equipment, and they sell across the globe. And historically, they've been a very, very profitable business. The return on equity right now is about 29%. Now, their five-year average is lower than that and more in the high teens. But uh, if you go back to, you know, this company is around the early 90s, its average return on equity has been kind of in the mid to high teens. So I like that level of profitability. It's a volatile level of profitability. It can be up and down, but... Most, mostly it's up. And they don't have a ton of debt, about $2 billion in net debt in their balance sheet on a $9 billion market cap. That's fine. Free cash flow, about 550 billion, sorry, not billion, million. And that's plenty of cash flow to support their debt load. Now, what are they doing with that cash? They're paying a little bit of a dividend, about 1% dividend yield currently. And all last year, or actually, sorry, pre-pandemic, they're buying back shares. And they continue to do that, but at a slower pace. So they've been right-sizing their balance sheet, which I think is smart. And overall, I don't have any problem with this name. This is a perfect example of a company that doesn't pay a high dividend, but it's profitable, it's a good balance sheet. 
And that's far more important in this environment than chasing after that high dividend yield. Because remember, dividends can be cut. Just like that. They're not sacrosanct. And when they're very high, they tend to be act like more like bond proxies. That's why you see utilities fall so much. Whereas this name, it's a good business, good cash flows, good balance sheet. Most people will look at the 1% and say, yeah, I don't want 1%, it's too low. But that's not what investing is about. It's about good businesses. And I like this business. I like the valuation right now. It's not overstretched enterprise value even only six times. Perfectly fine. The technicals are nothing right home about, but they're not bearish. I'll say that. They're neutral. Longer term, it's been kind of in a trading range since 2021. But to me, that's bullish consolidation for eventual breakout. Now you might have to wait another six months to a year for that to actually play out. But I like the name. A-G-C-O is the symbol. All right, let's touch a bit on corporate debt. And we are in an environment where a lot of large corporations are somewhat immune to these higher costs of capital, higher costs of debt. Why? Because it was so easy for them to issue debt at very, very low rates. Apple, I remember some of their bonds are yielding, have a coupon rate of about 1.5%. I remember that's fixed. That's fixed. Doesn't matter how much interest rates go up. But when you dig deeper into more opaque parts of the market, such as leveraged loans or private credit, you'll see that most of them don't have their rates locked in. And there are trillions of dollars of floating rate debt with interest payments that will adjust as the market moves higher. And companies don't usually hedge against this move in interest rates. And one index of leveraged loans has leapt to 10% in yield. But if you look at the underlying strength of the businesses that are supporting these private pieces of credit, it continues to deteriorate in a, in, a, in, a, in a material way. Now, UBS estimates the value of outstanding, outstanding American leveraged loans at around $1.4 trillion in assets, whereas private credit at more than $1.5 trillion. Now, traditional leveraged loans are arranged by banks and sold in syndicated funds to usually wealthy private individuals. And so these are smaller loans and they're also less liquid and there's not a whole lot of transparency to the market. Now, since 2010, the average annual default rate on the leveraged loan market has been less than 2%. But over the past 12 months, it's gone up to 3%. And the agencies expect that to go to 4.5% next year. And this is even worse for those that have issued debt 
during times of high valuation. And this is the same for the private credit market as well. Now, according to a study by Bank of America, the interest expense on such businesses have increased by less than 3%. But coverage ratios, which compares the firm's profits with its interest costs, have started to decline rapidly. And interest costs now consume half of profits at these firms where loans are held by large, what we call BDC companies. And these are common in the private market as well. There are publicly traded BDCs, but there are a lot of privately traded BDCs sold to wealthy individuals. Say, hey, you can get 8, 10, 12%. So the question is, who will be left holding the bag? Well, it's a lot of these wealthy individuals that think they're getting these safe yields when they're really not. The underlying strength of those businesses are weak, and they'll be the ones to go bankrupt first because they don't have access to the public markets because they've never tapped them. They're not public companies. They don't have a relationship with an investment bank. They don't have bonds that are traded out there in the marketplace. And the recovery value is going to be very poor. Why? Because the, a lot of these loans were called covenant light, meaning the companies can take a long time to reach default. And when they get there, they're going to be in worse health, meaning the poor allocation of capital that brought them to bankruptcy will only continue for longer. And they'll be selling off assets to keep themselves going, etc. Now, the SEC announced rules to increase transparency in this space and demanding quarterly financial statements as opposed to annual. And so this is probably the scariest part of the investment markets today, a place where there's a lot of leverage, there's poor oversight, both from a regulatory standpoint, as well as the terms that were given out when these loans were originated. And so it's not investment grade credit. It's not the junk bond market. It's these private credit vehicles, funds that are out there that wealthy individuals are buying into uh, to try to chase yield. All right, now let's keep things moving and put it back to the Best Talk Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier at 888 chart Hey, Stephen Justin, Mark from the Carolinas, calling about AOS, AO Smith. Um, I own this one up quite a bit. I know there's been a recent pullback and then had a pretty good day today. Wondering what you guys think about six months ago, and I think your fair value was in the 80s. Just wondering if you guys are still thinking the same. Thanks. Have a good one. Uh, yeah, this is A.O. Smith. This is a name that we have sold over the past few months. I don't remember exactly when that was. But, uh, yeah, our value is still in the low 80s. It's at about $70 today. Uh, but it was just more of we found better places to put that capital uh, and there, there is a risk to a slowdown in the residential construction market, both here and abroad. And that's another reason why we sold along with, you know, we sold uh, a home builder that we had held for a long period of time because we just saw got to rates got to a point where and, and uh, just the dynamics in the housing market got to a point where 
the pace of new home production would slow. And ultimately, what AOS does for everyone else out there, they make water heaters, water heating equipment. And it's a very good business, very good company. No problem with the company. But the dynamics, cyclical dynamics, said that it was better to take our profits off the table and you know, kind of move into something that we felt had better economic tailwinds. So you know, the long and short of it is, is it a good business? Yes. Is the value higher? Probably yes. But in the near term... We didn't like the cyclical backdrop uh, for this particular sector. That's why we moved on. Uh, maybe one day we get back to it, but at the moment, we're passing on AOS. But great company to have on a watch list. All right, let's make it two in a row. This one came in earlier from the UK. Hi, Steve, Luke, and Justin. It's Alex here from the UK. I have a question about Lowe's, uh, ticker L-O-W. Um, I hold a small position I was having a look through the fundamentals and the um, projections are relatively stable but seem to be improving um, in the next year or two. But I also noticed there's a reasonable amount of debt, I believe about $40 billion, um, on their balance sheet. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on this stock and um, whether it's uh, a buy, sell or hold. Thank you very much and I look forward to your answer. All right, yeah, Lowe's Corporation, they do have about 30, $37 billion in debt, net debt on their balance sheet, but $113 billion market cap. It's a little bit of debt, but not too dramatic. But I would like that to be lower, so I, I would say that is something to consider. Uh, but it's more of the kind of long lines of AOS, you know, less people building homes, buying Furniture to go into those homes, more mainly appliances. So most people buy when they buy a new home, for example, because that's what's happening is the pace of home buying has kind of stayed flat, but the market share of new, the new home market has expanded from typically between 10 and 15% of home purchases to 30 plus. And especially when there's a new home, they are buying new appliances and they go to places like Lowe's and Home Depot uh, to typically do that. Uh, but Lowe's has certainly peaked out in July made a lower high in August and is threatening its support level around the 190 level, which was in March. And I think it's going to head lower than that. So, and if you look at the earnings trends, it's actually negative. Earnings this year are expected to be down 3% from last year. But if you look at the trend of analyst earnings, that continues to be negative. So that's not what I want to see. I want to see the trend in earnings being positive. And we know the cash out refinancing biz is, is gone. Uh, and I think this is going to mean revert back to something closer to pre-pandemic levels around maybe $6, $7 per share. Now it's expected to make $13 a share this year. And 14 a share next year. But I think that's unlikely as well. Last quarter, revenues are down 9%. Earnings are down 2%. So, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of lows uh, at these levels and with the current uh, economic backdrop. So, I am passing big time on L-O-W. All right. Now, as we move into the fourth quarter, Steve and I have been telling you for a while that we are in a new market regime and new serious investors need to adjust their thinking, their strategies to fit these unique times. 
Now, in some ways, it's not unique. It's just a cycle that happens. You know, we talked about the fourth turning, and we're kind of in that phase of, uh, of crisis. But with crisis brings opportunity as well as risk. So the question is, are you on the right side of that? Do you, are you putting the odds in your favor? Or are the odds stacked against you because you're using an old playbook? Or you're simply paying attention to the wrong metrics? Well, I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve at our company, KPP Financial, where we practice the same, the, the same mantra, both on and off air. And that is independent thinking, shared success, as well as parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients. So I encourage you to take advantage of our free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go-to meeting. Just send us a message through investtalk.com or give our Irvine, California office a call at 800-557-5461. Yeah, it's an 800 number. We're, we're approaching, I don't know if you know this, but next month will be our 30-year anniversary as a company. Pretty exciting. So if you want to sit down with us, talk with us virtually or in person, just head over there and complete the portfolio review form by clicking on the portfolio review button on the top right of the screen at kppfinancial.com. The sooner you get in contact us, the sooner we can help you get your portfolio optimized. All right, this is Invest Talk. We're heading into our final break. I'm Justin Klein, and our goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom, and our work continues after this break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART. Invest Talk is here to help. And when you download the free Invest Talk podcasts, don't forget to rate and review. The phone lines are open 888-99-CHART. Hello, Justin or Steve. This is Todd in Birmingham. My question today is, what have I got wrong? I purchased KBWP Invesco Property Casualty back in March uh, with the idea that insurance would be something that people would have to buy even during hard times. Uh, should I buy more, hold, or sell? Thank you. All right, KBWP, this is the Invesco Exchange Traded Fund for the property and casualty insurance industry. And if you bought it in March, hopefully latter, latter part of March, you've, you're up. Um, but, you know, it, it, I think it's more of the broad industry, the broad financial services industry that has been a, an underperformer. And so that's going to feed into kind of near-term results for the, the industry as a whole. Uh, so I, I wouldn't say you're, you did anything wrong. A lot of these companies continue to do uh, pretty well. I think it's just more of you have to pick the right names. Um, you know, we like the insurance industry, and we've picked names that have certainly outperformed this uh, this industry, this uh, ETF. Uh, but I don't think you're doing anything wrong. You're still up from March, but remember, most sectors are not up that much since March. So I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I think you're still in the right part of the market. Hey guys, this is Darren in Charlotte. I've been listening to you for a bunch of years and I appreciate all your advice doing my own investing, my own company stocks and whatnot. But prior to that, I had money through Thrive and that money I had pulled out and it's kind of on the sidelines and I'm looking to go back in here over the next month or two. 
the issue, of course, is you, they only have certain funds or sectors that you can choose from. So my question is, what sectors do you see as a good investment going forward? I am 50 years old, so I've got at least 10 years of this money sitting there, and I'm not opposed to, you know, putting it in energy for a couple of years and then moving it out and going somewhere else. I keep an eye on it. So ultimately, my question is, what sectors? do you see as the best spot going forward? Thanks, bye. Well, that depends on your time as You're talking about kind of timing the market, right? Saying I wanna be in this sector and then I move into another sector and that's notoriously very difficult to, to do, especially for an amateur. Now we can do that because we have a lot of data, uh, but we see that data coming in and we that we evolve with that data and so i don't know what the data will look like in a year two three years and to, to, to tell you that now what i will say is secularly because we're in an inflationary environment there are five sectors that typically do well in an inflationary environment that would be number one and number two kind of first tier would be energy and basic materials okay so now if the dollar continues to be strong well near term those will have a bit of trouble. But longer term, once again, inflationary environment, those tend to be probably the next decade, probably some of the best sectors to be in. Now, the second tier would be industrials and financial services. Once again, they can be cyclically a challenge near term, but longer term in inflationary environment, they tend to do well. And I think industrials would be better than those than the financials if I'm picking one or the others. Why? Because of the reshoring and manufacturing. Not just to the US, but to North America more broadly. And to build out that infrastructure, that manufacturing capacity, it's going to need industrial base to do that. And CapEx spending, and they will be big benefactors of that. Now, the banking industry I think will weigh on the financial services industry for a while. Although there are pockets of the financial services industry that I really like, like insurance. But it's hard to say exactly who the best, what, what's the best sector over the next uh, decade. But you, once again, it's about playing the odds. And to me, those top four sectors uh, have the best odds of being the best performers over the next decade due to this inflationary environment, higher cost of capital, etc. Thanks for the call. All right, let's touch a bit on green policies and the backlash that you are typically seeing from these pro climate policies. Now we know, here in the United States, Donald Trump is not a big fan of green policies. And he said, you can be loyal to America labor, or you can be loyal to the environmental lunatics, but you can't really be loyal to both. So we know that is a trend here in the United States that the, the green policies that are being implemented or even being proposed to be implemented uh, are pretty, pretty political, politically divided, shall we say. But it's not just here in the United States. Britain's prime minister announced that they're doing, they're, they're, delaying by five years a ban on the sale of new petrol cars. Germany kicked a proposal for stringent green home heating rules into the future because they couldn't find enough workers. 
France has seen huge protests against high fuel prices. So is places like Sweden. And France is looking to potentially elect Marine Le Pen, who hates wind farms and wants energy transition to be much slower. So the political undercurrents are not very reassuring to these trends. And voters are realizing that remaking the entire global economy is going to be disrupted through their lives. Now, most people who are against it say, you know, we still need to do something about it, but they want to tackle it in different ways. And they think that opposing, imposing those costs on ordinary citizens and adding more hassle to their busy lives is really not worth it. And especially the elderly who don't want to make those changes because they're not good at changing, but also the benefits they're not going to live to see. So views differ on who should shoulder really the burden of this transition. And most people say it should fall on someone else. A survey by, in 29 countries said that only 30% of respondents would be willing to pay more taxes to help the energy transition. Even though 12, in all 12 rich countries that they looked at, the thought that the climate crisis was a major threat rose in every country over the past couple of years. And in all 14 rich countries, people on the political right were less likely to see climate change as a major threat. So in our, our polarizing political climate and our populist political climate means that this transition is going to be harder. And what that probably means is different policies are going to be tried. And that's why I think nuclear is as a clear tailwind. Because people aren't fully on board with just solar panels, wind farms, and EVs. It's going to be look a lot different. That's why I think when people say, "Oh, we're going to not have we're only going to have electric cars by 2030," it's so misguided. It's not. It's not going to happen for logistical reasons and raw material reasons, but also political reasons. And so when you're looking at these trends, you have to understand this backlash, whether you agree with it or not, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter your politics. Doesn't matter my politics. It matters the facts on the ground. The facts are this transition is going to be a lot more difficult and contentious. And what you've seen over the past couple of decades is very unlikely to be the trend in investment within the green energy space over the next decade. All right, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Best Talk program. Steve Peasley, I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing.